The best way to start is with a baseball illustration. Red Sox fans have been frustrated for many generations by the lack of a world championship. My own frustration started in 1967. That was the first year that I can remember really being a baseball fan. That was the year in which Kyle Yastrzemski probably had the greatest season of any major league baseball player when he won the Triple Crown and constantly, game after game, provided some sort of Red Sox magic to propel the Red Sox into the 1967 World Series. He won the Triple Crown and the MVP that year. It had been 21 years since 1946 that the Red Sox had not been in a World Series, yet they lost 4-3 to three to Bob Gibson in the St. Louis Cardinals. After many years after that of saying, this is the year, this is the year, this is the year, we get to 1975, where two rookies come on the scene, Fred Lynn and Jim Rice. Fred Lynn was the Rookie of the Year and MVP that year, but again, the frustrations continue to mount as Bill Lee, with his famous Ethos pitch, throws it to Tony Perez one time, too many, and the Cincinnati Reds, the big red machine, beat the Red Sox four games to three, losing another World Series. That brings us to 1976, where maybe we say, hey, wait a minute. We now have a pitcher. Roger Clemens comes on the scene and wins, and wins the Cy Young and MVP award. But one night we can all remember is when a freight train went through Bill Buckner's legs and the Red Sox ended up losing the World Series in game seven, the game after, to the New York Mets. At this point, I was saying to myself, you know, maybe one world championship in a lifetime would be enough. And the frustration continues to mount year after that, as the Red Sox made many, world, uh, many playoff appearances, but always failed to get to the final game, get into the World Series again. A new ownership group, led by John Henry, takes over. And suddenly, the penny-pinching Yorkie Harrington regime is not there anymore, and the Red Sox go out and sign Latin players and African-American players, and they become a much better organized team. Pedro Martinez comes on the scene, and we all know what happened in 2003 when he's left in just a little too long in what should have been a World Series appearance. But fortunes change in 2004. We now have Kurt Schilling, David Ortiz, and Manny Ramirez as the Red Sox beat the St. Louis Cardinals Four games to none to win their first world championship in 86 years. 2007 comes along, and now we have David Ortiz, Mike Lowell, and Josh Beckett on the scene as the Red Sox win again four games to nothing, this time over the Colorado Rockies. In 2013, we have a group of seasoned veteran players led by David Ortiz, Shane Victorino, Mike Napoli, some veteran pitchers on that team also, John Lackey. And what happens? The Red Sox this time beat the St. Louis Cardinals four games to two. And now we have last year where we have a solid group of young players led by Mookie Betts and J.D. Martinez and um, uh, Andrew Benatendi and Jackie Bradley a solid core, and the Red Sox cruise their way through the season, cruise their way through the playoffs, finally beating the Los Angeles Dodgers four games to one to win their fourth world championship in 15 years. More than any Red Sox fan could have ever imagined when this whole situation started, this whole change in, in culture for the Red Sox in 1967. The wait till next year frustration was finally over. And not only that, 
There's a reason why the rest of the country looks at us and, and hates us is because we have six Patriots championships, a Bruin Stanley Cup, and a Celtic championship all since 2001. So it's been a really change in the frustrations that we have. But although all these championships that we've seen in New England have been nice, they're relatively meaningless events in our lives. I remember the day after the the 2004 World Series, my life didn't change. I still got up and went to work and still faced the same problems that I was always going to face and would be facing. But it's nothing. These years of frustration were nothing compared to the frustration that we face as a result of our sin nature. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, we're going to see that what God takes what frustrates us, our sin nature, and abundantly provides more than we could ever hope or expect or ask for. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 7, and then we'll dive into this passage. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though I was formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So the first point we're going to look, want to look at this morning is found in verses 12 through 13, where we see the magnitude of our sin. Does your sin nature frustrate you? Our sin nature is not a very popular topic for us to discuss, but it's a reality that we all need to deal with. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, when we view our own sinfulness in the light of this passage that we're looking at this morning, we might feel that our sin fails in comparison to what Paul is describing here. Look at verse number 13. It says that Paul was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. When we look at all these sins that Paul was committing, they were all direct attack against the Lord Jesus Christ and the new Christian religion, which was coming up as a result of the Lord Jesus Christ's death on the cross. It says he was a blasphemer, meaning he spoke evil and slanderous and abusive, and his actions were a direct attack against the Lord Jesus Christ. If you remember back at Saul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, the Lord Jesus Christ said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It says that he is a persecutor. His attacks were a direct attack against the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was mistreatment, harassment, and murder. He calls himself an insolent opponent. Paul was a violent and unmerciful man. Acts 1.9 tells us that he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Being an insolent opponent made him prideful. 
the King James uses the word injurious. In other words, he was a bully. And what does a bully do? He exerts influence by force or violence. So what he was trying to do was he was trying to get a direct attack against the Lord Jesus Christ to stop people from going into this sort of a way, way of thinking. And he had the full um, cooperation of the Jewish people at this time. But when we consider our sin nature, it may not elevate to this level, but we know this, that all sin before God is deserving of death. There, with God, there is not like me and no ranking or pecking order of sins. It's all sin. It's all discretion. It's all a direct attack against God himself who paid the price for our sinfulness on the cross. In Jeff Bridges' book, Respectable Sins, I'm going to read a couple of passages which will kind of bring this to light for us. He says, the Apostle John wrote, sin is lawlessness in 1 John 3, 4. He says that all sin, even sin that seems to be minor in our eyes, is lawlessness. It is not just the breaking of a single command. It is a complete disregard for the law of God, a deliberate rejection of his moral will in favor of fulfilling one's own desires. He further says that at that time, the law of that momentary pleasure is stronger than our desire to please God. Sin is sin. Even those sins that I call the acceptable sins of the saints, those sins that we tolerate in our lives, are serious in God's eyes. Our religious pride, our critical attitudes, our unkind speech about others, our impatience and our anger, even our anxiety, all of these are serious in the sight of God. He goes on to further say in this book, the concept of sin among many conservative Christians has become essentially redefined to cover only the obviously gross sins of our society. The result then is that many morally upright believers, the awareness of personal sin has effectively disappeared from their conscience. But it has not disappeared from the sight of God. Rather, all sin, both the so-called respectable sins of the saints that we too often tolerate, and the flagrant sins of society, which we are quick to condemn, are a disregard for the law of God and reprehensible in his sight. Both deserve the curse of God. He goes on to say this about sin. The more important issue, however, is how our sin affects God. Some has described sin as cosmic treason. It seems like an overstatement. Consider the word transgression in the Bible as we see, for example, in Leviticus 16.21. It actually means rebellion against authority, in this case, God's authority. Primarily, the word holy, when used of God, speaks of his infinite, transcendent majesty. It speaks of his sovereign reign over all his creation. Therefore, when we sin, we violate the law of God in any way. Be it ever so small in our eyes, we rebel against the sovereign authority in the transcendent majesty of God. To put it bluntly, our sin is assault on the majesty and sovereign rule of God. It is cosmic treason. So even though it's difficult sometimes for us to talk about our sin nature, and society has tend to take sin out of society, it's unfortunate that in many cases, even in the church, we don't hear much preaching on sin. It's a reality, and it's a reality that we all have to deal with. Let's look at Romans chapter 5, please. 
This was part of our responsive reading this morning. And it kind of gives us a direction of where our sin nature comes from and what God has done in his grace and mercy to remedy the situation that we all face, the frustration that we all face with our sin. We're in Romans chapter 5, and we're going to pick it up in verse number 12. The Bible tells us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin, for, in, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose transgression was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who was to come. So our sin nature came right from the Garden of Eden. It came right from the very first man. It came right from Adam. Before the law was given to Moses, which condemned sin. So all men are born with a natural bend towards sin. It's a sin nature that is inherent in each and every one of us. And since Adam, this sin nature has been increasingly and continually expressed in man's actions and lifestyles. Just look at the way the world is today, how things have gotten worse and worse and worse over many, many, many generations. Things which years ago were called pornography are right there out on television for everyone to see. Things which were called sin and blatant disregard for God's law are now called pro-life, acceptable lifestyles. It's all changing. And the sin nature, as it indwells in man and as man's consciousness of his sin, this sinful nature, gets further and further and further along, that self-awareness that where sin is, the sins become worse and worse and worse. And it's going to continue that way until the Lord Jesus Christ comes and sets up his perfect kingdom and his perfect rule in which righteousness will rule in the world. And these sins and that we tolerate today will be judged swiftly and decisively by in the thousand-year millennial reign. So it tells us in this passage also that sin brings forth death. And the evidence that sin has continued from generation to generation since Adam is that man still dies. The wages of sin is death. Had Adam not sinned, death would not have come into the world. That's the curse. So this is continued and continued from generation to generation to generation. And it's evident from the way man's sinfulness is and how it's growing and growing and growing. And man continues to be subject to the curse of sin, which is death. Let's turn back to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. So we saw that sin was cosmic treason against God in, in, in the passage that we read from uh, the book, Jeff Bridges' book. And we know that sin is worthy from death. And we know that all men are sinners. However, God does not leave us in this position. He does not leave us there. We see in the next, the next point we're going to look at is God's grace through faith in Jesus that we're not left there in a hopeless situation. As, as we look at the beginning of this passage in, in verse number 12, we see that Paul says this. He says, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to this service. It says in the, you know, the New King James Version, appointing me to, in, into the ministry. So from what Paul sees, the grace of God and the, and the grace that comes from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is thankful for this. He's thankful for this because despite the sinfulness that we saw, that he was a blasphemer, an, an, an insolent man, an injurious man, despite all this, 
He has a continued thankfulness. This is not just a, a, a momentary thank you for opening the door for me. Thank you for praying for me. This is a continued thankfulness that was expressed in the Apostle Paul's heart. Why? Because even though this is the type of man he was, even though this was his lifestyle and his actions were directly against the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ put him into the, in, into the ministry, entrusted him with the gospel, entrusted him to be one who had, he had been such a vigorous opponent, put him in a position where he could be a, vig a vigorous proponent of what God commanded in Scripture, of spreading the gospel. Notice what it says in the end of uh, 1.11. He says uh, in, in, uh, in 1 Timothy, he says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So Paul was continually thankful to God for putting him into the ministry. Let's look at verses uh, 13 and 14 again as we, as we explore this a little further. He says, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So God showed Paul mercy because his actions resulted from two things. First of all, he acted ignorantly. He was acting without understanding. We're going to look at that again in a moment. And also because he acted in unbelief, he acted in lack of faith in Jesus. Now keep these two points in mind for a moment, because as we look further, we're going to see how God took these two things and remedied them in Paul's life, as he does in all believers. Paul was blinded from the truth. He acted ignorantly without understanding. We know from Scripture that there are several verses which talk about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 tells us this, that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, they are foolishness to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 3 and 4, we know this, that even if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In this case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So unsaved people are blinded from the truth of Scripture. It seems foolishness to them. And this is because they need the Spirit of God to illuminate their minds so they can see what man calls foolishness to be the only truth that there is. People make up their own truths to explain things they don't understand. There was a big explosion and all this chaos created in life. There's no God, they, they say. You know, when you die, you go into the ground like a dog. There's no difference between man and animal. But remember, back in Genesis, God breathed into man the life-giving breath of God. And it says, and, God, and man became a living being. When Pastor Rob was talking last week that God put eternity into man's heart, that's when that happened. He breathed the eternal breath of God into man, and man became a living being created in the image of God created to be eternal. But where they spend that eternity is all dependent upon their reaction to the gospel and what God says in, in his word. That's, that's where man's responsibility comes in in all this. So ignorance, though it's not an excuse to sin, 
was what Paul had. He was ignorant of what was going on. He was, if you remember, when he gives his testimony, it says all the things he did as a very um, devoutful Jewish man. He did all of these things, but he counted them worthless because when he was presented with the gospel, he saw the real truth of what God's word says. And ignorance is not an excuse, but God afforded him the opportunity to open his eyes to the scriptures. Now, in the Old Testament, when a person sinned out of ignorance, we see this in uh, Leviticus chapter 5 and Numbers chapter 15, he was permitted to bring a sacrifice to atone for his sins. So Paul was acting in ignorance, and God, on the road to Damascus, the Lord Jesus Christ approached Paul and opened his mind and opened his eyes to the truth of what God's word says. Paul was afforded the opportunity to repent and be saved by God's mercy and grace when he was presented with the gospel. As such, the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ was, was enough, sufficient enough, more than enough, to provide atonement and forgiveness for all Paul's sins. In this passage, it tells us that God's grace, in verse 14, far exceeds Paul's sinfulness and our sinfulness. Where there was once unbelief and ignorance, the Bible now says that the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Let's look at this for a moment because it's vital to our understanding of where Paul was going. First of all, it says that it overflowed. That is an exceedingly abundant supply of grace, more than we could ever need, more than we could ever want, more than we could ever expect, considering our sinfulness. Now, remember, we said that our sins may not be as grievous as the ones that Paul was committing there in man's eyes, but in God's eyes, sin is sin, and all sin is attack against God. David says in the Psalms, against you and you alone have I sinned. So even though our sins may affect other people around us, it's a direct assault on God's holiness. It's a direct assault on God's majesty. It's a direct assault on God's character. And it's considered a grievous sin that should frustrate us and should lead us to repentance in our own lives and seeking forgiveness because of the, how that sin offends God, how it offends him. So it's this grace overflowed. The King James says it was exceedingly abundant, more than we could ever ask. And what does it do? It says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me, speaking of Paul and us also, with faith. Now, if you remember, it says that he acted in unbelief. The grace of God brought faith. It brought belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Where he had acted ignorantly in unbelief, he was now acting in faith. He was now acting in full faith of who the Lord Jesus Christ was. It says faith and love. Love is God's grace and mercy in action in your life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God's love is expressed in his mercy and grace to repentant sinners. And it says that it gave, and it says what the object is, where before Paul was persecuting the Lord Jesus Christ, it says that the grace of our Lord overflowed with me with faith, which was now, which turned belief, which turned unbelief to belief, and love, which was God working in his life, that are in Christ Jesus, the object of faith as evidenced by the gospel. So it turned Paul's whole life around, God's mercy, an overwhelming and exceedingly abundant supply 
of grace and mercy. Paul was given the opportunity and privilege of serving the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that he had previously blasphemed. Let's look at Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at several key concepts in this particular passage, which are going to kind of bring to light the saving grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's something we're all familiar with, but we need to be reminded of these things. You know, we need to be reminded that we're still sinners, but we also need to be reminded that we're not left in that state of sinfulness. God provided the perfect solution for man's frustration for his sin. We're in Romans chapter 3, picking it up in verse 21, where the Bible tells us, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now there's several key concepts in this passage that we're all aware of and these passages show that God's justice and love were reconciled at the cross, the first thing we see is the word righteousness in verse 24, and we know that righteousness is the only condition that is acceptable to God. That's the only condition. It means holiness, guiltless, sinless, and innocent. And we know that our own righteousness will never be enough for us to see God in heaven. It's the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ that allows us the privilege to stand before God. We see that we're justified in verse 24, which means we're declared righteous. And it says that this is by God's grace and is a gift. It can't be earned. It can't be earned by works. It can't be earned by, um, by doing good deeds. It's a free gift. It cannot be earned. It comes from grace and mercy from God. It tells us that we are declared righteous because of the redemption the ransom payment. The Lord Jesus Christ paid the price for our sin on the cross, which releases us from the penalty of sin, which is death. And it tells us that this ransom payment was, in God's eyes, fully satisfying God's wrath over our sin and now allows God to show mercy and grace without compromising his holiness. This is what we see in the word propitiation. So we see that all of these facets and all of these, 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 um, these concepts and all of this, these Bible truths were resolved at the cross so that when we're in frustration for our own sinfulness, we need to be reminded that those sins have been bought and paid for and that in God's eyes, he does not see us as the condemned sinners that we are, but he sees us in the light of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was what Paul was referring to back in 1 Timothy. Now let's turn to Romans chapter 5 and pick up where we had left it off with man's sinfulness coming directly out of the Garden of Eden. It tells us, beginning in verse 15, it says, but the free gift, 
which we had seen in uh, chapter 3, is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God in the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance, there's that word again of God's overwhelming grace, much more will... Uh, will, uh, will those re who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So what we're seeing here is that, as with Adam's sin, all men were subject to death and all men were made sinners by one man's act of righteousness. Many will be made free from the penalty of sin if they accept the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. One trespass led to condemnation for many, and one act of righteousness, one single act of righteousness, the once-for-all sacrifice, that once-for-all sacrifice leads to eternal life for every single person who believes and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a biblical truth. It's a truth which is grounded in Scripture, and it is the solution for our frustration over our own sinfulness. Now, we're still, going to be, we're still sinners. We're still going to fall. But there's hope for us because of this, because of this situation. So our sin nature is still going to frustrate us at times, but we should not allow ourselves to be left in this state of frustration. It's good that it opens our eyes to what we've done. You know, the law points to, points to things. That's why the law is good. It points to our transgressions, but it does not condemn us for what our transgressions are. And it's good that it points to what we do in, in, in our own sinfulness because what that does is that leads us to repentance and asking God for forgiveness and restoration of fellowship. If we did not have this frustration over our sinfulness, we may just go along like everything's fine. Well, I'm saved. I can, I can just move on. It, gives us, it points to wh who we are and what our, own, what our sinfulness is. So we see, in, as in continuing with this passage, in verse number 18, it says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Now the law came, into, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, here it is again, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we see that it's an exceeding amount of grace more than we could ever expect or hope for because of you know, our sin nature and what our sin is to God. So let's turn back now to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we looked at the magnitude of our sin that our sin is grievous to God, all sin is grievous before God. We look at the solution for our sin, which is God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And now we're going to look at that no sin is beyond the grace of God. Look at chapter 1 and verse number 15. 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now we know that the purpose of the incarnation or God becoming man was for the Lord Jesus Christ to come into the world and pay a sin debt that we could never pay on our own. It had to be a perfect, sinless sacrifice, and it had to be the perfect, sinless sacrifice of one who was sinless, which is only God. So as God is eternal and God cannot die, the Lord Jesus Christ had to take on human form. Now, when he took on this human form, he never gave up his deity. This is a, a concept which can be difficult to understand. He never gave up his deity, but what he gave up was the expression of his deity by coming in the form of man. And he came in the form of man so that he could die a death that would pay for the sins of all mankind. So in doing this, the Bible tells us in this particular passage that it says that this is a saying that is, first of all, trustworthy. And when something's trustworthy, it is faithful, and it can be relied upon. If someone is trustworthy, if you know someone that's trustworthy for you, you know that you can rely upon that person, whether it's handling your um, financial affairs or handling your, um, your, your estate after you pass or handling, you know, your, 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 your um, you know when, when you get ill, taking care of your, your health care sort of issues. When someone's trustworthy, you can say, you know, I'm going to put my trust in this person because I know no matter what happens, this person's going to get the job won. There's no doubt in our mind. So when something's trustworthy, there should be no doubt in our mind about it. There should be no doubt in our mind that the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, which Paul says, of whom I am the foremost or the chief. And it tells us this also, that it's deserving of full acceptance. It's worthy of belief with no exception excluding all doubt. So when we read this passage and when the, and God opens our eyes to the truth of his word, we know that there's no doubt about that. There's no doubt about the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and that, his, and that this salvation is available to all people who believe in him. This is a fact that should not be disputed in, in any believer's life or anyone's life because it's written and grounded in the truth of God's word. Now notice what it says in this passage. And this is where Paul is getting at when, when, as he's bringing all this up. He says that Paul considers himself the foremost of all sinners, saying in, in a sense of this that there could be doubt in someone's mind that such a grievous sinner could be saved or was even worth saving at all because of his sins were directly against the Lord Jesus Christ. As we look back at his record of a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, you know, we see that this was... This was a very grievous sin because it was against the church. It was against Jesus Christ himself. Yet he says, God forgave him. God forgave him and appointed him into the ministry. He not only forgave his sinfulness, which would have been enough, but he entrusted him with the very word of God. That Paul, you know, you're going to be the man who's going to go out there. You're going to write some very powerful New Testament passages, and you're going to be a missionary who is going to spread the gospel. So the grace of God not only saved him, it was overly abundant. It fully equipped him for service in the ministry. And Paul is alluding to that if the Lord Jesus Christ will save him, the chief of all sinners, then the grace of God is sufficient enough 
to cover all, all sin regardless of man's <coughs> sinfulness. It's, it's, gr- it's good enough to do it. So we thus conclude that no sin is beyond God's saving grace. And, the, and this passage tells us that this is a trustworthy fact, and this is a fact that is full of all acceptance. 1 John chapter 1, in verse 9, very familiar passage. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Picking it up in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor rivalers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. And we we see these things and it's a very grievous list of sins. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. It tells us that repentant sinners are washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we are sanctified and continually being sanctified by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we are justified, we're declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have the Spirit of God within us to show us that this is the case. We're not left in our sinfulness. No sin is beyond the grace of God. The single sacrifice that's referred to in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12, which says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It was finished. It was a single sacrifice for all time to cover all sins, regardless of the sinfulness of mankind. The Lord Jesus Christ provides that perfect atonement that is the answer for the frustration of our sinfulness. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 56 and 57 says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know that we share in that victory? That should bring us joy, right? We share in that victory. We're not left in our own sinfulness, in our own sinful state of minds to doubt what's going to happen when we close our eyes here on earth for the last time. We're not left in this state. We have a victory to cling on to. We have a hope that the world does not not have. And we know this, because remember, it's trustworthy and worthy of all acceptance that when we close our eyes here on earth for the last time, The next words we'll be hearing is welcome home, good and faithful servant. As we face our Savior eye to eye, face to face, the one who paid the penalty. And that should bring us great joy and hope that we need not be frustrated. We hang on to a living hope. The world's hope is a dead hope. You know why? Because the world's hope is going to stay right here on earth. The world puts their hope in things like cars, money, whatever they can find. Earthly things, temporary things, but when your hope is in heaven, it's an eternal thing, and that should bring you joy because you know something? 
The only thing that we're going to take out of this world and bring to heaven is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to bring that to heaven with us when we trust in him to be our personal Savior. So let's turn back now to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We saw the magnitude of our sin, God's grace through faith in God's grace through faith in Jesus, and that no sin was beyond God's grace. And now we're going to see that mercy is a display of God's long-suffering patience. Look at verse number 16. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. God's long-suffering or patience with sinners is demonstrated by his willingness to save the Apostle Paul. God's greatest enemy had suddenly become his ultimate saint. And Paul is an extreme example of God's long-suffering towards sinners. Now, we know that God, the Bible tells us that God is not a respecter of persons. God will not change his standards for any person. It's, it, God is not a respecter of persons as we are. We sometimes see in our, in our society that the laws and things will change because we're a respecter of, of persons. Things can be moved aside and changed based upon who you are. Not so with God. So if God would save the utmost and show patience with Paul, who called himself the foremost of all sinners, then again, no sin is beyond the saving grace of God. It's, it, it's a fact that, that, that we see. And God does not change this for, for anyone or anything. And Paul is proof. He's the ultimate example. He's the proof that the gospel can change the life of any sinner. Notice who he was. He was a blasphemer. Now what is he? He's a witness. He's a witness for the Lord. He's been entrusted with the gospel. What was he? He was a persecutor. What is he now? He's a preacher. He's preaching the word of God. He's preaching the gospel. He's bringing the gospel to other, other places. He's writing scripture passages. He's speaking to us still today through the Holy Spirit in God's word. He's not a murderer anymore. He's now a minister and a missionary. So God's word does work. Grace does work. It changes your life. The gospel changes your life. The gospel just wasn't there for you the moment you got saved. The gospel's there every day of your life to help you understand God's word, understand where you came from, understand where you're going, and understand that there's a truth in God's word that can be relied upon. And that should change your life. God's word should affect you and change your life, the way you think, the way you act, the way you breathe, the places you go, the way you talk. It should change your life. And that's an important fact that was brought up in Scripture. God has long-suffering patience. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, it tells us this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient, that's long-suffering again, toward you, not wishing that any should perish, that, but that all should reach repentance. This is what's meant by long-suffering. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God will never give up on his creation. He'll never give up on those who are called. He'll never give up on those who he's sanctifying. You might fall down. You might skin your knee. God will pick you up. 
and help you get through it. You might break your leg and not be able to get up. God will pick you up and carry you. He'll carry you. The grace is abundantly sufficient to redeem all sinners who repent, regardless of who they are, and no matter what their past was like. Because the gospel and the grace of God changes people's lives. As we look at all of these concepts that we've looked at this morning, all of these Bible truths, the magnitude of our sin and how grievous it was, God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he provided the only remedy for our sinfulness, that regardless of where, of where we've been or what we've done, no sin is beyond the grace of God, that God is long-suffering and patient toward all sinners, not wishing any should come to repentance. This leads us to the only conclusion that we can have is that God is praised for his overflowing, abundant grace. Paul began the passage in verse 12 by saying, I thank him who has given me strength, who has put me into the ministry, Christ Jesus our Lord. He starts by thanking him. He's a constant and continual state of thanksgiving and praise. And he concludes what we're looking at this morning in verse 17, where he says this, To the king of the ages, the immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's contemplation of this passage and ours contemplation of it should lead us to a state of awe and adoration. Notice what he says to the king of the ages. God is, has always been, and always will be in control of all human history. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of all time, and all that goes on in time. It tells us that he's immortal. God is eternal, and you know what God does to all believers? He gives them eternal life. He gives them eternal life with him. God is invisible. The essence of God is everywhere. We need not fear. God is always with us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. And then he concludes with this thing here, the only God, as opposed to the false gods of religion and mankind. Do you know God is unique? He's the one and only. There's none like him. There's none who can love like him. There's none who can outgive him. There's none who can outbless him. That's, an, that's something that we're grateful for, that, that, that we should be grateful for that, that we know this God. And yet, despite all of these attributes and despite our sin nature, God is willing and was willing to intervene in human history to redeem his creation, to spend an eternity with him. That's an overflowing abundance of God's grace in our lives and in the church. Notice what it says in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. 2 Corinthians 9.15 tells us this. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift, which is the gift of God's grace. It's the gift of God's grace. God alone 
is worthy of glory and honor. No one else is. You know, we put glory and honor in our own lives on all too many things. There's too many earthly things that we count of value. But when we look at the final analysis in all things, when we, when we, when we, when we sit down and we let Scripture control our minds and the Holy Spirit lead us in the way we should be worshiping, when we do this, we realize our need for a Savior. And we realize the grace of God is available to us. That same grace which saved Paul, which took him from a murderer, a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church, that same grace changes each and every one of our lives. It takes us from our sinfulness. It might be gossip. It might be, you know, it, it might be drinking. It might be drunken. It might, whatever it is, whatever it is that we were before, that same grace transforms us and continually transforms us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that same grace put every single person in this room into the ministry. It's our duty to proclaim the gospel to the lost, to those people who are the ones that God is showing his long-suffering patience toward. It's our duty to do this. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, this morning, hopefully, these words have touched a part of your heart and maybe want to know a little bit more about the grace and mercy of God, the abundant grace, and how that abundant grace could take you from the state you're in today and put you into the family of God where you will spend an eternity with your Savior. You're still going to have problems. You're still going to have situations in life which are going to frustrate you. But you know what you'll have? You'll have the Holy Spirit indwelling you to remind you continually that Jesus paid the price for each and every one of those sins. And you need not fear or be left in your own state of depression, but you can have the joy that being a child of the King provides. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this passage of Scripture, which reminds us, Lord, of our own sinfulness and our own sin nature. Father, it reminds us that we were in desperate need of salvation, but it also reminds us that there is an overflowing, abundant grace that comes from the cross, and that overflowing, abundant grace leads to eternal life to everyone who believes. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the inexpressible gift of salvation. Father, it was an act that only you could do, and you have redeemed us from the slave market of sin and brought us into the family of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.